Amen. Let us pray. Father, we thank you for your word this morning. We thank you for this psalm we just read. David said the entirety of your word is truth. He also said that all your commandments are truth. Father, we live in a, a land, a nation where biblical truth and biblical morality is under constant attack from those who hate you, those who hate your people, those who hate your name, and those who hate your church. Father, we live in a land where evil is good and good is evil. Lord, we live in a land where those who believe in a biblical uh, sexual ethic are called homophobic or, or transphobic. Lord, we live in a, a land where uh, those of us who believe in um, biblical definitions of, of marriage are, are called uh, homophobic and, and unloving and intolerant. Lord, we live in a land where your truth is constantly under attack. But Father, we are people of your book. We are people of your word. Your word tells us, again, that all your commandments are truth. Your word tells us again, Lord, that the entirety of your word is truth. In other words, Lord, where does truth come from? It comes from you. It comes from what you have revealed to all of us through the Holy Scriptures. And Lord, it is high time for those of us who call ourselves the church of the living God. To proclaim your truth boldly, to stand on your truth unapologetically, to declare your truth with clarity to not be afraid of the scorn of, of, of sinful man of sinful people to not be afraid of ridicule or being ostracized or being called names for holding on to your truth because father the Lord Jesus said to his disciples in, in Matthew 10 that uh, when he was warning them of the impending persecution that they were going to face. He told them in Matthew 10 around verse 28 to, to not fear him who was able to destroy the soul but not the body. But rather, Lord, to fear him who was able to destroy both the soul and body in hell. In other words, we're not to fear the threats of man. Man can only harm our bodies. But man cannot touch our souls. And so, Lord, as we stand for your truth, may we do it without fear. May we do it fearlessly. Because, Lord, the entirety of your word is truth. All of it from Genesis 1 and 1 to Revelation 22 and 21. Lord, all of your word is truth. All truth. Is found, is centered, is founded in your word. Give this church, the living church, the gospel boldness to not be afraid of 
your truth, to not be afraid to proclaim your truth. And Father, as your truth is proclaimed, we pray that you bring the multitudes of men and women to listen to the gospel, to break into their indifference to the gospel, and Lord, to raise them from the spiritual dead and save them. Those people who have hardened their hearts to your word, Father, may you save them when the gospel is proclaimed. Those people this morning who have not risen out of their beds or they're participating in some type of other recreation, who have no thoughts of coming up to any place of worship. Lord, we pray that you give those people a love for your house, a desire to hear your gospel. And Lord, we pray this morning for our leaders in Washington, D.C., in Montgomery, Alabama, for our state in, in our city halls and our county commissioners. Lord, we pray for all of those in authority who are called to be servants, who are called to serve their people. Your word calls us, Lord, to pray for kings and all who are in authority, that we may lead a quiet and peaceable life. We pray, Lord, for all nations. We pray for all states and, and cities and municipalities. Lord, bless and remember the lands that are sitting in darkness. And Lord, let them see a great light, the great light of the gospel. And may they come to their light and be saved. Lord, we pray this morning for our children that they might be saved. Lord, we pray that you may save them from their sin, save them from their rebellion, those who are living in rebellion. Lord, may they know that their souls matter to you, that one day they will have to stand before you and give an account. And we don't know when that will happen. It doesn't mean that uh, they'll get a chance to live their whole life and then all of a sudden think that they're going to come to the Lord when they're older because, Lord, by that point, their hearts would have been so hardened that they would be beyond the point of return. Lord, save them while they're young, while they're, while they're tender, while the ways of the world have not completely vexed their souls. And Lord, save the sons and daughters of godly people who have been praying for their children, their prodigal children. Lord, let them not sigh over their children as Eli did with his sons or as Samuel did. But Lord, may they see their sons and daughters become the children of the living God. Lord, we pray continually for our sister churches and other like-minded uh, churches, Anderson Bible, Great Fellowship, uh, Christian Fellowship, Redeemer Church, Iron City, uh, Baptist, Mountain View Church, Lord, we pray for all these men, all these brethren who are laboring in the gospel that you may bless their preaching this morning and bless their churches with the word. Lord, that you may use your word to encourage the saints, to encourage the faithful, and to bring sinners to repentance. Lord, we pray this morning that you send forth your spirit to convict men 
and bring them to your feet. And may your son be glorified. Lord, we pray this morning here that you may fill me with your spirit to preach this text well as we continue our study through the parables of the gospel of Matthew. And Father, send your spirit to illuminate, to make clear, to reveal the truth that you want us to hear this morning from heaven. Lord, may you be blessed and glorified in the preaching and the hearing of your word this morning. To Christ be the glory forever and ever. Amen. Amen. We're in Matthew's gospel, Matthew 13th chapter. We're in the parables of the kingdom. And this morning, we're going to look at the parable of the net or the dragnet. In some translations, it is called. As we work through these parables, this is the last of the parables of the kingdom as we get to the rest of the parables in the other parts of this book. So we're going to be in verses uh, 47 through 31. It's a short parable, but it is full of uh, truth. And again, this is the parable of the dragnet. Amen. And this is the word of the Lord. It says, again, the kingdom of heaven is like a dragnet that was cast into the sea and gathered some of every kind which when it was full they drew to shore and they sat down and gathered the good into the vessels and threw the bad away so it will be at the end of the age the angels will come forth separate the wicked from among the just and cast them into the furnace of fire there will be wailing and gnashing of teeth amen going to do six observations here of this text uh, the first one is that Jesus again emphasizes that this is a kingdom parable again he says the kingdom of heaven is light uh, these are the parables that we have been looking at the last uh, few weeks these are parables about the kingdom of God and how it operates the kingdom as of now is a spiritual kingdom but when Christ comes back he will set up a physical kingdom right now we are in the spiritual kingdom of Christ because he has not yet come back and established his kingdom now the gathering here where it says the dragon that was cast to the sea and gathered some of every kind. The gathering here does not teach universalism but the reason why I bring that up is because uh, universalist churches and Unitarian churches those are churches that believe that everybody will be saved eventually that nobody goes to hell. And this is one of the passages that they well, one of the verses that they use out of context by saying uh, that 
gathered some of every kind. But this here does not teach universalism where all people in the net are in the kingdom. But rather, this is a gathering for the purpose of separation, which if you read the rest of the parable, you will see that's what happens. But that is the problem with a lot of false religions and denominations. They they take one verse or a part of a verse out of context and establish a whole theology around that. And this is one of the verses that uh, universalist Unitarian Jews, and that is an apostate denomination, by the way. Uh, anytime you see a universalist Unitarian church, think apostate, meaning that they have departed from Christian orthodoxy. Another observation is that uh, the one difference between this parable and the wheat and the tares, you know, the wheat and the tares, they're going to be separating in. But the, the one difference is that uh, the wheat and the tares, uh, while the kingdom is coming to the world and is to work in a mixed society, the community created by that working of the kingdom is not a pure community until the separation is at the end of the age. So this parable is different from the wheat and the tares. Not because the wheat and the tares, they grow up together. You know, the, the wheat and the tares, the sheep and the goat, and then the separation happens at the end. And this is the separation that takes place as we see in this parable. Now, separation in this parable is a major point of emphasis. It takes up uh, the second half of this passage. The Jews could not eat all types of fish. Uh, you see this in the book of uh, Leviticus, I think in the 11th chapter, it talks about the, the different dietary uh, laws that Jews had. There were certain types of fish that they could not eat. Some fish were good or edible, and some were bad and inedible, and they had to be thrown out right away when they went fishing. There are certain type of fish that Jews could not eat, so they cast them away. And so separation also indicates that there are two responses to the gospel as we are going to see. There is always a separation. We talked about this in the parable of the soils, that there will always be a response to the gospel. There's never a neutral response to the hearing of the gospel. When the gospel is preached, there is going to be a response. Some will receive it and believe, and others will reject it and disbelieve. And Jesus will also separate the sheep from the goats. We'll see that in Matthew 25. So this separation is happening right now as the gospel is being preached around the world. A separation is happening. As the gospel is being preached, people are either hearing the gospel and receiving it. Receiving it means receiving it unto faith, believing in it, and being saved, repenting of their sins and turning to Christ. Or they're hearing it and they are rejecting it and they are disbelieving it. It's like the famous quote by uh, the British Prince of Preachers, Charles Spurgeon, the same son that melts wax hardens clay the same sun that uh, the same gospel that uh, melts some hearts to repentance hardens other men in their sins that means that the, the gospel either has a softening effect on a person's heart or it can harden a person each time they hear it and that hardening of the heart is a type of punishment from God it is a judgment rather against that person who rejects the gospel 
as they continue to reject it, their heart gets what? Harder and harder and harder to, until the point where it becomes calloused. So this separation that we're seeing also points to that, that there are two responses to the gospel. And this parable's emphasis is also more than about the dragnet than about the fishermen who cast it into the sea. It is about the drawing in and not the casting out of the net. And if you notice in this parable, the last observation is nothing is said of the righteous. The emphasis is on the warning. Excuse me. The emphasis of this parable is the warning. Because you notice, and we'll see this as we go through it. Verse 49, the bad were thrown away. In verse 48 and 49, the angels will come forth and separate the wicked from among the just. So the emphasis of this parable is on the wicked, not on the just. It is on the unrighteous, not on the righteous. Now, why do I point that out? Because, again, you have a lot of apostate churches or you have a lot of uh, preachers who are afraid to preach the full counsel of God. And they don't want to talk about the warnings in Scripture, the warnings that Scripture gives to sinners. They only focus on the things that they think people want to hear or need to hear as opposed to preaching all the warnings in Scripture. They avoid them. Why? Because they don't want people to leave out of church offended or convicted of their sins and their need for a Savior. They don't want people to do it. They want people to leave church feeling comfortable in their sinful state and comfortable in the fact that they're unregenerate and that they need to be saved. So they avoid all the warning passages. But the emphasis of this parable is one of warning. Go to the next slide right here. I think I have a uh, illustration of a dragnet. Now, believe it or not, in ancient uh, in antiquity, you know, we have fishing boats and vessels now. But in those days, some of those fishing nets were as wide as half a mile. I mean, think about how half a mile is long. Okay, uh, so those fishing nets, those men would take the nets and go to the seashore. You have so many men on one end and so many on the other, and they would uh, cast the net out into the sea and then just drag it in. And, and you know, and I'm thinking about our day, if you took a net and dragged, uh, took it out to the seashore and dragged it in, you have all kinds of stuff coming in, like license plates and, you know, uh, uh, anybody saw the movie Jaws when they had that net out and then they, they pulled it in and had all this trash and license plates and you might see an arm or something like that. I mean, you know, just everything just drags in. But, you know, uh, they weren't as junky as, as, as we are now. You know, plastic bottles and everything. You know, you probably see some discarded masks. I mean, just just everything. But in those days, this is how they fished. This is how they got their fish. They had to go out there with the dragon. It was a very laborious task very very physically taxing because you're pulling against the, the the waves going out and you have the weight of the fish you know as you're pulling in so you had to be you know fishermen were not not weak men and so they would cast that net out and then uh pull it slowly to the seashore and then at that point you know the separation would 
take place where they, uh, you know, discard the bad fish and keep the the good fish according to Jewish uh, dietary law. So it was a it was, it was a very long task. Okay, one like bubble gum, you know, shrimp, you know, where they go out there with the nets and just you know pick up everything, you know. Um, but it was it was it was a, it was a good task. So it took a lot long time to do this. So I just want to show y'all that illustration. So we're gonna get to two principles today. Now principles deal with interpretation of the parable. The first principle. Jesus gives the interpretation of the parable in verses 49 and 50. He gives the parable in the first two verses. So 49 and 50 represent the interpretation. So the first principle is that judgment is certain. Judgment is certain. Now, if you read through the Gospels, you will see that Matthew spoke on judgment more than any other gospel writer. He often emphasized the coming of the kingdom and the judgment that accompanies it. He often spoke of that because one of the themes of Matthew is Jesus Christ as king. And remember, a king has a kingdom. And in the kingdoms are the subjects of that kingdom, the people who live in that kingdom. So that's why Matthew emphasizes the kingship of Christ, Christ as king. And kings, as they rule, they have to judge. They have to judge their subjects. They have to mete out punishment, just punishment for those who do wrong in their kingdom. So he says here in this parable, so it will be now. At verse 49, so it will be. That is a point of certainty, and it is an imperative. What will be? The separation. Look at verse 48. When it is full, they drew uh, to shore, and they sat down and gathered the good into the vessels and threw the bad away. So it will be. So this is what will happen. This is an imperative. There will be a separation. Judgment is inevitable. Hebrews 9 and 27 tells us that it is appointed unto every man once to die, but after that, the judgment. Ten out of ten people are going to die. Death is certain for every single person. It cannot be avoided. No matter how many people try to get uh, plastic or cosmetic surgery to reverse aging, you're still getting old. You may not look your age, that's okay. There's nothing wrong with looking younger. But your cells are still dying. All of us have an appointment with death. All of us do. And the older I get, the more death sobers me. Because I'm 50 years old, I'm, I'm, I'm sliding down that hill, you know. <laughs> I'm, I'm way over here, I'm, I'm, I'm kind of sliding down now. And, you know, the Lord tarries, and I'm 60 and 70, that, that hill gets faster and faster. But there's a point unto every man, young people, you're going to die one day. We don't know when that's going to happen. I was uh, uh, earlier this week in the news in Coleman County, a 19-year-old uh, boy and his 14-year-old brother were killed in a single-car car accident. 
His brother was driving. I'm, I, don't, I, I don't know if speed was a factor or not, but it's very tragic. A, a young man and his brother died in a car accident, 19 and 14. You hear about teenagers dying all the time, not just through gunshots, but car accidents, whatever the case may be. Bad accident in California that happened earlier this week where a lady plowed through a, a stoplight and, and killed six people. These people just mind their business in traffic. It is appointed unto every man wants to die. We don't know how. We don't know when. We don't know by what means. We don't know if it's going to be, as people say, peacefully in our sleep. And you know the thing about that, the, the, the bad thing about that when people say that? Nobody goes to bed thinking they're going to die. It's appointed unto every man. Death is the great leveler. Because all of us are going to leave this earth. But that's not the end of it. You know, we're not like secularists who believe that uh, this life is all there is. That, you know, the old soap, soap opera, One Life to Live. <laughs> you know, YOLO, which is kind of out, out now. That was, what, 2010s or whatever. You know, you only live once. No, you don't live once. This is not the only life that you have to live. This is not the end of it. The world says what? Live it up. Eat, drink, be merry. Live life to the fullest. Manifest. Live it up. This is, this is it, man. Just do everything here. This is, this is it because after you die, you, you, you just go to the great beyond, the great nothing. Your life is meaningless. You're just a bag of fizzing chemicals. That's, that's what they think. And that's what they tell people. Your, your life doesn't mean anything. Go out and just do whatever to your body. Take whatever drugs, drink whatever, alcohol, sleep with whomever you want to. You know, you only live once. Hey, man, go on and enjoy it. Sow, sow your royal oats. Live, laugh, love. All these foolish things the world tells us as if they're is no judgment. And when you look at how a lot of people live, they're living as if they don't think it's going to be a judgment. <laughs> That's how they live. But we of the book know that it is appointed unto everybody who wants to die. And after, after this, the judgment is going to happen. It is inevitable. As of now, Jesus is not judging, but he is saving. Right now, he is saving souls. Matthew 3, 16 through 18 says this. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. But listen to this, verse 18. He who believes in him is not condemned. So those who believe in Christ, they are not under the condemnation. Paul says that in Romans 8 and 1, there is no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. But he who does not believe is condemned already. Why? Because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God right now Jesus is saving we can proclaim loudly Jesus 
saves. Jesus saves. Jesus is saving. Repent and believe because he is saving. Whoever believes will have everlasting life. Now is the day of salvation. Because right now, Jesus is doing what? He's gathering people into his kingdom. But that's not going to always be the case. Because when he comes back, he's going to come back as judge. When Jesus comes back, it's over. If you're not saved, you're going to be judged for your sins. And you're going to be condemned and we're going to see what you're going to be condemned to. Paul says this in 2 Timothy 4 and 1. To Timothy he says, I charge you therefore before God and the Lord Jesus Christ. Who will judge the living and the dead. At his appearing and his kingdom. Who's going to judge the living and the dead? Christ. You got people going around saying, only God can judge me. First, they're wrong. It's going to be Jesus who's going to judge them, first of all. But number two, he is going to judge you. According to his judgment, his commands, his word, his standards. Yes, God, through his son, Jesus Christ, will judge you. But it's not going to be according to man's standards going to be according to the standard of God's word Jesus right now is saving but when he comes back he's going to come back and judge the living and the dead number two principle we see the agents of judgment in this parable It says the angels will do what? Come forth. Verse 49. So who are the agents? The angels. Just like in the wheat and the tares. The angels will be the agents of judgment by separation. Matthew 25, 31 says this about the judgment. Begin at verse 31. This is what Jesus says. He says, when the son of man comes in his glory. And all the holy angels with him. So when Jesus comes back. This is Matthew 25. You want to turn to that. Matthew 25 and 31. Let's look at this passage. And this is in the context of judgment. You know who's not going to judge you? Your fake friends. You're not going to stand before their judgment seat. They're not going to be able to vouch for you. <laughs> Your family member's not going to be able to vouch for you. Your co-workers, your husband, your wife. When you stand before God, when I, I, mean, when I stand before Christ, when you stand before Christ, we are giving the account for ourselves. No one's going to be there to plead our case. And we won't even be able to vouch for ourselves. Our works are. And if you're a believer, your works will be judged. If you're a sinner, 
your life, your life of sin will be judged. Matthew 25, 31. When the Son of God, Son of Man rather, comes in his glory and all his holy angels with him, then he will sit on the throne of his glory. This is the, uh, I call it the glory throne, but this is the great, great white throne of judgment. Christ is going to sit on his throne of his glory. It's going to be like a, a king seated in his seat in all of his majesty. And Christ is going to be seated as king and as ruler of his kingdom. And the holy angels with him in all of their splendor. And what does it say in verse 32? All the nations will be gathered before him. And he will do what? Separate. This is what this parable is talking about. That's what his agents are going to do. He will separate them one from the other as the shepherd divides the sheep from the goats. And he will set the sheep on his right hand, but the goats on his left. And you want to be on the right hand, not the left. Okay. And what will he say to the ones on the right hand? Come, you blessed of my father. Inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. And what we say to the left hand, verse 41. Depart from me. You were cursed. Into the everlasting fire prepared for the devil and his angels. So the angels are going to be with him when he does this separation now the separation of the angels will be without partiality and discrimination it will be final it will be a complete separation there will be no mistakes made it will be total once the separation is done it's done there will be no pleading as I said earlier this separation will be final it's like in our judicial courts, when that gavel goes down, that means that the, the verdict that was rendered is final. You won't have time in 20 years to go before the heavenly parole board to get parole from hell. Once that judgment is done, friends, it is done. Once those angels separate, that's it. Once those fish are cast out that dragnet, they're cast away. They're not to be consumed. Now, as believers, if you're a believer in here this morning, we have to understand that we're not God's agents of judgment. We can't do the separating. It is not up to us to do it, just like in the wheat and the tares. The parable said, let them do what? Grow up together. It is not our job to do the separating. It's not our job to do that. We must understand that. We cannot do the separating. We are called to spread the gospel. Now, this does not mean that we cannot judge at all. We just don't separate. We're called to judge. Despite what people say, don't judge me, Matthew. They take Matthew 7 and 1 and, and take it out of context. We are called to judge. 
but we're not called to cast people out or to separate people. We don't have a heaven hell to put anyone in. That is for God to do. We are called to spread the gospel. We are not called to judge people to hell or to heaven. That is reserved for the angels to do. But we are called to judge. Righteous judgment. Matthew 7 and 1 says, Judge not that you be not judged. And people use that verse to silence people by saying, Don't judge. Matthew 7 and 1. They don't read the rest of that passage. We judge, we remove the speck from our eye. Well, we remove the plank from our eye first before we remove the speck from our brother's eye. In other words, we judge in light of ourselves as sinners. We don't judge as if we've never sinned, but we are called to judge. We are called to make judgments about people, righteously so. We're not called to discriminate, but we do discriminate. There's a right way to discriminate. You know that, right? I discriminate against uh, broccoli. <laughs> That's a discrimination. I'm, 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 I'm judging broccoli because it's nasty and it looks like trees. Yeah, little bitty trees, but I'm, I'm discriminating. I'm not discriminating against broccoli eaters, <laughs> you know. It's just if you came to my house to eat, it won't, it, it, you won't have anything with broccoli in it. Talk about that, you know. But all of us discriminate. But we discriminate righteously according to a righteous standard. All of us judge, but we judge according to what kind of standard? A righteous standard. We judge considering ourselves, not putting ourselves above the people that we judge. But in the grand scheme of things, it is not to us to to put people in heaven and hell. That is uh, God who will do that through his angels. Now, what's the criteria of judgment? In this parable here, we see the angels will separate the wicked from the just. That is the criteria. Separation of the wicked from the just. Now, who are the just? The just are the righteous now we have to understand this apart from the grace of God all will go to hell say that again apart from the grace of God but for the grace of God so go I apart from the grace of God all will go to hell all will be cast into the furnace because the fact is that none of us are just. If you think you are, you haven't read Romans 3 verses 9 through 26. None of us in and of ourselves are just. None of us in and of ourselves are righteous. We talked about that last year when we were preaching through the doctrine of man, the doctrine of total depravity, that all of us are conceived in sin. We are conceived with the mark of Adam on us. What does Paul remind us here in Romans 3? Romans 3 and 10. There is none righteous, no, not one. There's none who understands. There's none who seeks 
after God. They have all turned aside. They have together become unprofitable. There is none who does good. No, not one. All of us are sinners. All of us are conceived in sin. There's no such thing as a person who's born good. All of us, all of us are born with the stain of sin on us. And I always make this illustration. If you don't believe in total depravity, you haven't had a child. <laughs> when y'all were little babies, you were little devils. As Vody Balcom said, you were a viper in a diaper. You ever seen little babies in action? Boy, they will scream so loud and everybody's attention goes right to them. And what do the parents do? They scramble to get the bottle or change the diaper or whatever it is. And sometimes you can do all that and they're still kicking and screaming. And then when they turn one and two years old and they're able to walk, they want you to pick them up when you want them to walk. And, and when you pick them up, they have a little fitness, kind of lean back in your arms like that. Kind of having fit, so they or they go in the store and they want something off the lower shelf where they put stuff for kids. They get all these different colors and they get they get mad and start crying out real loud in the store. And you got to take them out. And you telling me that kids are born good? Babies are the most selfish, self-centered beings around. That's part of our sinful nature. Because guess what? Your schedule rotates around them. Your life rotates around them. Everything you do is about that little seven, six, seven, eight pound baby. Everything is about them. Isn't that right, mama? Isn't that right, daddy? Everything is about that baby. Why? Because... They're selfish. It's, it's, it's cute, but it's selfishness. It's covetousness. They, they want things that they don't need when they go in the store. Some parents don't even take their kids in the store because they know they're going to start acting up when they go to the kids section. Don't even take them to the, the, the kids section. You put them in the cart, they find they want to get out the cart. <laughs> they didn't want to push the cart. And they don't push the cart the right way and you... Get on to them, and they start pouting and screaming, and you try to put them back in there, and they kind of straighten their legs out because they don't want to sit down, you know. Vipers in a diaper. The point is, all of us, none of us are good. There's none who is righteous. None. All of us are sinners. We have the mark of Adam on us. None of us are just. None of us are. It is only through Christ that we are made just. We're only made just by righteousness through faith. And Paul continues to say that even in Romans 3. He says here, verse 23 of Romans 3, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And all means what? The Greek word for all is all. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, being justified freely by his grace through redemption that is in Christ Jesus. 
So how are we made just? The word just is a is a judicial term to be justified. To be justified means to be declared righteous. And the doctrine of justification tells us that once Christ saves you, your sin record has been expunged. You stand before God sin free. Because who paid your sin debt? Christ did. You are now justified. You are now declared righteous in God's sight. When God sees you, he sees the righteous justified state that you have through his son, Jesus Christ. It is as if you've never sinned before. Our sins are what they call expiated. They are taken away from us or taken off of us. That's what justification is. That's what it means to be just. But we're only made just through Christ, through salvation in Christ. None of us are just in and of ourselves. No man can justify himself before God. No man can walk to God and say, I am just before you. We're only made just through Christ. So when this parable is speaking of the just, that's who it's talking about. It is we, those of us who are believers, who are the just in this parable. It is grace. It is all of grace. 1 Corinthians 15 Paul says this in verses 9 and 10. He says of himself, For I am the least of all the apostles, who am not worthy to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the uh, church of God, but by the grace of God I am what I am. And his grace toward me was not in vain, but I labored more abundantly than they all. Not Yet not I, but the grace of God which was with me Paul knew that it was all grace that made him right before God it wasn't anything he did why because he was a persecutor of the church of God Paul did nothing to deserve to be saved but it was through the grace of Christ that he was saved and he was declared just if we are righteous it is of Christ and it is not of ourselves It is not of anything that we've done. Paul says this in, uh, what is it? Philippians 3, 9 through 10. He says, and be found in him not having my own righteousness. Which is from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ. The righteousness which comes from God by faith. Paul knew that his righteousness wasn't from himself, but it was through Christ, by faith. That is how we are made righteous. The righteous are those who are accepted by God. This is what Leon Morris says in his commentary. He says, the righteous are those who are accepted by God, those who are judged as in the right when they are judged before the Uh, divine tribunal he's talking about the the great white throne of judgment he says it is easy to misinterpret this as though Jesus were talking 
of an ethical virtue and holding that those who have attained this virtue by their own efforts are righteous. But throughout this gospel, there's an emphasis on the little ones, the poor, those who have no merit of their own. And it is those of whom Jesus speaks here. Those who are finally righteous are those who realize their own shortcomings and rely on God's mercy. That is so true. A person who thinks they're righteous, they're actually unrighteous. That was a problem that Jesus had with the Pharisees. The Pharisees were very self-righteous. And that's why Jesus said, except your righteousness exceeds those of the Pharisees. Because the Pharisees were so self-righteous that they didn't need Jesus. They rejected Jesus. They accused him of blasphemy. They, they accused him of casting out spirits by demons, by Beelzebub, therefore blaspheming against the Holy Spirit. They told him that uh, he was not Abraham's descendant, but that they were. They opposed him on every end because he came to overturn their false righteousness. He was a threat to them because they were so self-righteous. They relied on their own righteousness. Friends, we're not righteous because of what we do. In that case, an atheist, a secularist can be called righteous. Because they do good moral things. You can have an atheist group that can go out and feed the homeless. Does that make them righteous? Because they feed the homeless? No. Because they reject God. So therefore, they're not righteous. They're not in Christ. So they can't be righteous. That doesn't mean that a person can't do righteous things. But that's not what makes a person righteous. It's not about what they do. As Paul says here. Not his own righteousness. But that which is through faith in Christ. Righteousness which is from God by faith. It is faith in God through Christ. Who marks us among the righteous. So we have the definition of the just or the righteous. So the next question is. Who are the wicked? That it says here in the parable. The wicked from the just. The wicked are those who have rejected grace to their own destruction. The wicked are those who have not believed because they do not want to believe. Looking back at John, the third chapter, we just read verses 16 through 18. And it's worth looking at verses 18 through 20 in that same chapter. Turn your Bibles to that right quick. This is Matt. This is John three looking at verses 18 through 20. So we're going to look at the autopsy of the wicked. There are those who have not believed because they do not want to believe. Matthew 3, begin that verse 18. I'm sorry, John 3, begin that verse 18. He who believes in him is not condemned, but he who does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name 
of the only begotten Son of God. Now, what is this condemnation? Remember, those who don't believe are condemned. So what is their condemnation? Okay. That light, what is light? The gospel, the gospel of Christ has come into the world. And what do the condemned do? They love darkness rather than light because their deeds were evil. And listen to this. For everyone practicing evil hates the light and does not come to the light lest his deeds should be exposed. People stay away from the gospel because they hate the light. They hate the truth that the gospel brings. It will expose them of their evil. And you know what? They love their sin more than they love being with Christ. That's wicked. Wicked people love their sin. Wicked people revel in their sin. They celebrate their sin. Think about our culture. I was thinking about this uh, preparing for a podcast that I'm going to do in a couple weeks. There was a time where people did certain things in in the shadows. And you didn't know about their lifestyles and how they lived. You know, there may have been whisperings about, you know, people's lifestyles or, or, or deviant behaviors or whatever. You know, 30, 40 years ago, you just didn't know. Look at where we are in 2022. Look at the news. Look at all the debauchery that is being paraded and, and flaunted out in public at parades at libraries and in schools it's like my grandma used to say evil ain't got no shame people have brought their sins out in the open with no shame drag queens being invited into schools to read to children brought to libraries quote pride parades where, where men it was in Seattle a video of, of men uh, riding in the Seattle pride parade uh, naked on bicycles and you got parents bringing their kids there to look at this garbage and celebrate it why because men love darkness rather than light and friends that is wickedness there are no two ways about it That ain't old-fashioned, no. That is wicked. And the parents who expose their children to that are child abusers. It's wicked. Why? Because men love darkness. They love sin. And they try to shame believers. They try to make us think we're the ones who are the fools. Stuff like that wasn't even thought of doing out in the public five years ago but now it's just all in open no shame 
They are trying to groom children. They are trying to pervert the next generation. Because men love darkness. They practice evil and they hate the light and do not come to the light. The gospel is like kryptonite. They're like, no! But guess what? They need to hear it. God didn't create you to do that. God made you in his image to worship him and to enjoy him forever. Not go out here and parade yourself and live out all types of sexual perversion. And destroy your body in the process. God made you in his image. Your life has worth and value because you have a divine creator and a divine designer who created you for a specific purpose. And that purpose is to worship him. Not to worship yourself. Not to worship your feelings. Not to worship social media likes and shares and and retweets and to go viral on TikTok. That is not why God created you. That's wickedness. But these men and women, they're wicked because they love sin. They love their sin. And what God has done as a judgment against them is gave them over to it. Romans 1 talks about that. God gives them over to their sin, and that is a judgment against them. Oh, they think they're living it up. But no, they're, they're slaves to their rebellion against God. Friends, if you go headlong into sin, if you keep rebelling against God, guess what? He's going to give you over to that rebellion. He's going to give you exactly what you want to do. That's what he's going to do. And guess what? You're going to start loving sin. You're going to start hating Christ. You're going to start hating your parents and your grandparents and all your friends who are trying to call you to Christ. You're going to think that they hate you. When they're trying to tell you that it is the truth of God that is going to set you free from that bondage. But when you love evil, you're going to hate the light. You're going to hate to hear the preacher preach. You're going to hate anything that sounds like God. I know plenty of people like that. I got former students that, I, that, that, that I'm ministering to that are just like that. They, they love me. They love Mr. Haygood. But they hate my faith in Christ. Why? Because they're wicked. They love sin. Their deeds are evil and they don't want them to be exposed. So when we look at this wicked in this parable, when we look at the wicked in our society, we must know that this wickedness is going to be judged. The gospel message does include judgment. That is part of the gospel message. Yes, Jesus died for the sins of those who believe. The gospel is a gospel of grace. The gospel shows us that we do not have the ability to believe in God. That we don't have the ability to be righteous or live righteous. The gospel shows us 
that it is God who makes us just and righteous. Either the gospel will be believed and upon belief the righteousness of Christ will be imputed or put on us or it will be rejected and in that rejection you will incur the wrath and judgment of God which will be poured out on all unbelievers. 1 Peter 2, 7 and 8 says this. Therefore, to you who believe, the believers, he is precious, Christ is precious, the chief cornerstone. But to those who are disobedient, the stone which the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone, a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. So, so, so Christ is an offense to those who are unbelieving. They stumble being disobedient to the word to which they were also appointed. Which leads to our last principle of interpretation and that is the terror of judgment. So look at what happens here in verse 50 of our parable. The separation is not it. It says here, the angels again will come forth, verse 49, separate the wicked from the just. We just looked at who the wicked are, who the just are, and what will happen. And cast them, them is not the just, <laughs> them is the wicked. Cast them into what? The furnace of fire. There will be wailing and gnashing of teeth. Just in case you didn't know, Jesus teaches more about hell than anyone else in the scriptures. You won't know that from those who want to cherry pick scripture and say, oh, Jesus, uh, Jesus talked about love. He talked about caring for the poor. You know, loving your neighbor. But Jesus taught about hell more than anyone in the scriptures. He is not only the savior of the world, but he is also the judge of the world. Sin has to be judged, friend. Sin was first judged on the cross. But it's going to be judged again. Our lives have to be accounted for in that day. And his judgment will be final. Christ himself preached of hell torments. The torments of hell. As we see here in this passage. Matthew Henry said that uh, Christ preached hell as the everlasting punishment of hypocrites and it is good for us to be reminded of this awakening quickening truth. John Bunyan the great Puritan uh, who wrote Pilgrim's Progress he said this in his booklet A Few Sighs from Hell. He says Satan will do all that he can to keep the thoughts of hell from men so that they would go on in their sins with no fear of death and judgment to come. It's like I said earlier. People living as if there's no, there's no final judgment. People living as if there's no heaven or hell. And Satan would do all he can to convince people that there's no such thing as hell. You have some people who believe that earth is hell. They say hell on earth. 
and they don't know where hell is. In this parable, we have the terror judgment described vividly by the Lord. So let's examine this interpretation. So what would the fate of the wicked be? Two main things he points out. Number one, they would be cast into the furnace of fire. This is hell. Simply put, this is the lake of fire. His words reminisce of Daniel 3 and 6. You know, the fiery furnace that the, uh, David and his three friends were put in. This, is, this, is, this kind of speaks of hell like that. Jesus speaks of the fate of the lawless ones. The angels would cast them into the blazing furnace. That is what it says in the Greek. The blazing furnace. Which fits in with other passages using imagery of fire for the final destination of the wicked. In that place, friends, there will be misery. Symbolized by the very specific weeping and gnashing or grinding of teeth. That's very specific, very vivid. And this expression occurs six times in Matthew. It occurs once in Luke and nowhere else in the New Testament. The weeping and gnashing of teeth occurs six times again in Matthew and one time in Luke. It leaves no doubt about the unhappiness or the final state of the loss. As, I, as I've alluded to the last few weeks, hell is not going to be one big party. It's not. Don't, don't listen to the television shows and uh, whatever else that, that depicts hell in some place where everybody's going to be sitting around having fun with Satan. Looking like, you know, he looks, or as they depict him, red with, 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 with horns and a, a trident tail and a trident in his hand. No. Sin is rebellion against God, and it demands a just punishment. We must know that. It is the justice of God meted out on the rebellious sinners who refuse to bow the knee to his son and his sacrificial death on the cross. Hell is punishment for all who have rejected Christ. Because after all, Christ's death is sufficient for all. But it is effectual only on those who repent and believe. His death is powerful enough to save all, but not all will be saved. Many will rebel and turn away from his salvation as they're doing now. Christ is mighty to save. That is the message of the gospel. He is mighty to save. His death is powerful enough to save, but not all will be saved. Why? Because we just read it in, in John 3. Men love darkness rather than light. Some people don't want to be saved. They want their sin. They want their rebellion. They want that rejection. They want that debauched life. They want that misery. Next he describes hell as weeping and gnashing of teeth. Hell will be a place of eternal 
torment. Eternal. I can't stress that enough. Eternal torment. Eternal sorrow and eternal anguish. You think you felt the worst pain in your life before. There's no comparison with hell. The worst pain you've ever been in would not compare to the torments of hell. It's eternal. It is forever. The parable of the rich man and Lazarus here in Luke 16. I'm going to read verses 22 through 24 for you. It says, then, okay, I'll just read the parable from the beginning. There was a certain rich man who was clothed in purple and fine linen and fared sumptuously every day. That means he was very rich and wealthy. But there was a certain beggar named Lazarus full of sores who had laid at his gate desiring to be fed with the crumbs which fell from the rich man's table. Moreover, the dogs came and licked his sores. So it was that the beggar died and was carried by the angels to Abraham's bosom. But the rich man also died and was buried. And being in torments in Hades, he lifted up his eyes and saw Abraham afar off and Lazarus in his bosom. Verse 24. Then he cried and said, Father Abraham, have mercy on me and send Lazarus that they may dip the tip of his finger in water and cool my tongue. For I am tormented in this flame. But Abraham said, son, remember that in your lifetime you received your good things and likewise Lazarus evil things. But now he is comforted and you are tormented. And besides all this, this is important. Between us and you is a great gulf fixed. So that those who want to pass from here to you cannot nor can those from there pass to us. The gulf between heaven and hell is fixed. Gulf means it's a separation. Once you're in heaven, you're in heaven. Once you're in hell, you're in hell. It's fixed. There's no crossing over. Then he said, I beg you, therefore, Father, that you would send him to my father's house. Y'all listen to this. For I have five brothers that they may testify to them, lest they also come to this place of torment. Abraham said to me, they have Moses and the prophets. Let them hear them. And he said, no, Father Abraham, but if one goes to them from the dead, they will repent. Listen to this. But he said to them, if they do not hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be persuaded, though one rise from the dead. We talk about people who they need to hit rock bottom. 
before they come to Christ. There is no rock bottom. If they don't listen to you, if they don't listen to the preacher, what makes you think they're going to listen when they hit rock bottom when they don't even know what rock bottom is? Friends, there is no bottom to sin. Now, God does restrain evil. He restrains the hearts of people. But there is no such thing as rock bottom to sin. Hell is going to be a place of torment. And no one in hell is going to be able to warn you about the torments of hell so that you can, quote, get your life together. Because that's not how it works. That's a big lie that Satan tells people. Oh, you'll have time. You got time. You're living on borrowed time. You don't have time. Now is the day of salvation. Or else you will be going to the place where there's eternal sorrow, where there's eternal anguish. And it will be eternal anger against God. That's where the anguish and anger will come from. Hell will be torment. It will go on forever and ever. Why? Because hell is eternal. You're not going to burn up. You're not going to go through purgatory. Once you're there, you're there and you are going to burn and be in torment forever. Repent and turn to Christ. I want to close this principle with this quote from the great 20th century preacher A.W. Tozer. He says, No one ever went to heaven that did not long to go there, that wasn't on the path to be there. No one ever went to hell that wasn't on the path to go there. We are drawn by the gravity of our soul to the place that we belong. There's a spiritual gravity that draws you to the place. So if you treasure Christ above all and you love him, you will be drawn to that place where you will worship him forever. If you treasure your own self and your own interests and the idols of this world. And these are the things where you want to walk your own path. Then the gravity of your own soul's desires would draw you to hell. Where is your life leading you right now? Is the gravity of your life drawn to loving Christ or loving yourself and loving sin? That is a question that we have to ask ourselves. Look at your own life. Where is your life leading you right now? Who are your friends? Who are your greatest influences? What are your heart desires set on? Who are your heart desires set on? That matters right now because it's going to determine the trajectory of your life. If you desire Christ, it's going to show. But if you desire a life of sin and selfishness and self-worship and idolatry, guess what? That's going to show too. It's serious. This parable is serious. 
This place of torment is serious. It is real. It exists. It's not a fantasy. It's not a myth. Hell is a real place. Right now Christ is saving. He's calling sinners to repent. He's calling men to turn to him. Come to me and be saved. Now is the day of salvation. Now is the day to say, Lord, I turn away from my life of sin. I turn away from darkness. I'm turning to you. Save me, Lord. I'm in sin. Save me. I'm living in rebellion against you. Save me, Lord, right now. Those who call on the name of the Lord will be saved. To the utmost, he saves. Don't reject that call because the more you reject it, the harder your heart is going to get. <coughs> and when you turn 60, 70, 80 years old, your heart is going to be so hardened that there's no, going to be no hope for repentance. There are too many people like that now. Their hearts have become hardened. Nothing moves them. The mention of Christ doesn't flinch them at all. They hear the gospel. Ah, I heard that stuff before. I don't need that. I don't need that right now. I'm, I, I want to go out here and enjoy my life and, and live my life. And then maybe later on, you know, I'll, I'll come. No, friends, it doesn't work like that. It doesn't work like that. There's an old saying, the road to hell is paved with good intentions. The road to hell is paved with those who thought that they could buy time. Who thought that they can go out here and live their life and make a mess of it. And then everyone is not going to be like that prodigal son. Some prodigals never make it back. Don't let that be you. Be on the right hand and not the left. God is calling you to him. Amen. Close now without implications here. The point of this parable is a warning. And it is an emphasis on the terrors of hell. That's what the point of this parable is about. Thank God for salvation. But this parable is a warning. It is a strong warning. Don't be deluded. Don't be deceived. God will not be mocked. It's a warning. Number two, we ought to have a fear of hell because we fear God. Let us not neglect the fear of God. Especially in matters of the soul. Do you know who will be watching over hell? It will be Christ. Read Revelation 14 and 10. God is not going to be absent from hell. You're going to be tormented in the presence of a holy and righteous God. 
Number three, don't gain the whole world and lose your soul. What profit is it to a man who gains the whole world, who gains the world's approval, who does what the world says do at the expense of your soul? What will a man or woman or child give in exchange for their soul? Many people have given, oh Lord, they've exchanged their soul for the things of this world. And it has sucked their souls. They've, they've, they, they've sold out. To the world. They sold out to the things of the world. And they're so lost. They're so empty. They're lost. They're without hope in this world. And lastly, the good thing is that the gospel removes the fear of judgment and death. Again, Romans 8 and 1, no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. The gospel removes the fear of death. For believers, guess what? We don't have to fear death. It's the unsaved who have to fear death because their lives are going to be judged for their rejection. But for believers, guess what? The death of a saint is glorious. Because we know that we don't face condemnation when Christ comes to judge the living and the dead. We know that he's going to hand out his rewards and his crowns. And this life will be all worth it. That is the joy of the gospel. Amen. I went a little longer than I thought. But obviously the Lord wants us to hear more things than I put in my notes. So let us pray as we close out. Lord, we thank you for your word. Lord, my sincere prayer and desire is those who hear this message both here in this church and through podcast. And Lord, you use it to convict sinners. Bring a strong conviction their way because Lord, they are under a strong delusion. Lord, bring conviction their way. Save them. Have mercy on them, Father. Use your word by the means of your spirit to turn their hearts to you so that they won't go to the place where there will be real, actual torment, where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth, where there will be sorrow upon sorrow forever and ever. And Lord, I pray that you encourage the faithful. Encourage us, Lord, to know that we will be part of the net. We won't be the ones cast out. That we will be like the man in the parable in Abraham's bosom. We will be with Christ. And Lord, may it encourage us to continue to evangelize our family members, our loved ones, our uh, co-workers, friends, people that we have good equity and relationships with, Lord, to, uh, uh, you know, that are unsaved, that we labor in doing that. And as they reject us, Lord, that we, we keep sharing Christ with them until they say stop. May we continue to share the gospel with them. 
in hopes, Lord, that they may repent and believe. Lord, use your word mightily. Use our witness mightily to bring men out of darkness into the marvelous light of the gospel. In Christ's name I pray. Amen.